Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Bob Schieffer, former CBS News anchor and current Walter Shorenstein Media and Democracy Fellow, and Anne Compton, former ABC News reporter and current Fellow of the Institute of Politics. They talk about the current state of the election, how the candidates and moderators will be preparing for the upcoming debates, and share some of their favorite stories from the campaign trail. The conversation was recorded at the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum at Harvard Kennedy School and is moderated by Nico Mille, director of the Shorenstein Center. Welcome to the forum. I'm going to have a little bit of a discussion with Anne and Bob, and then we're going to open it up to questions. But first, I want to take you back for a moment to uh, a September morning. It was a calm September morning in Sarasota, Florida, and President George W. Bush was reading to some school children. And in the back of the room was White House correspondent Anne Compton. And she watched White House Chief of Staff Andy Card come into the room and interrupt the president. You do not interrupt the president. She knew something was terribly amiss. And that was September 11th. Andy Card whispered into the president's ear, the country is under attack. Anne became the only journalist, on the only broadcast journalist on the airplane with President W. Bush, George W. Bush, for the next 10 hours. An incredible and unbelievable ride. This semester, she's a a fellow at the Institute of Politics and sharing her experiences and her wisdom after uh, covering every single presidential, uh, after covering seven presidents and 10 presidential campaigns. And it's a real honor and privilege to have her here. (laughs) Go in. 38 years earlier, uh, prior to 38 years before September 11th, Bob Schieffer was at the site of another national tragedy that seared itself into the nation's consciousness. He was a young newspaper reporter in Fort Worth, Texas. And her was at the, was at the office in the newsroom when the president, John F. Kennedy, got shot in Dallas. And the phones were ringing off the hook. He was picking up the phones and answering all these queries coming in. And he picks up the phone and one woman says, I really need a ride to Dallas. And he says, well, this is not at the taxi company. You got the wrong number. And she said, well, I think it was my son who shot the president. And he said, I'll be there, I'll be right there. And he drove Lee Harvey Oswald's mother to Dallas from Fort Worth. And that was in many ways the beginning of a long and incredible career. Uh, for the last 46 years, Bob Schieffer has been uh, part of CBS News doing, I think, uh, an incredible job. He was, there are four big beats in Washington, D.C. for political journalists. There's the White House, the Congress, the Pentagon, and the State Department. And Bob has covered each of those four beats. 
He hosted Face the Nation, and we are absolutely thrilled to have him here as the Walter Shorenstein Fellow at the Shorenstein Center. So I wanted to open with, I'm sure, a question on everyone's mind. What is going to happen here? Uh, in many ways, this has been the craziest presidential election uh, of a lifetime. But in other ways, it's been the most predictable. The candidate leading in the polls in both primaries won the pri their primaries. And one candidate has led in the polls for the entire general election. And so I just, you have watched many presidential campaigns. What do you think is going on? This is, you know, people, the, the question that people ask me is, have you ever seen anything like this? And, and the answer is no. In fact, I mean, I think, you know, all the campaigns that we remember, they always had a kind of a bumper sticker. You could, you could sum them up. I like Ike. Nixon's the one. All the way with LBJ. Uh, the, the bumper sticker from this one, have you ever seen anything like this? And the answer is no, or heard anything like this. Uh, you know, I made a little list of things that I, I never thought that I would ever hear in a presidential campaign. I never thought I would hear someone say, John McCain is a loser and Vladimir Putin is a winner. I just never thought I would ever hear somebody say something like that. But I tell you, my favorite, I never thought I would hear something like that, was when John Boehner, the former <laughs> Speaker of the House, called Ted Cruz uh, Lucifer in the flesh. <laughs> now that's not what I thought I'd never hear. What I thought I'd never hear was when the Devil Worshipper Society put out a press release and said, no, he's not one of ours. <laughs> that's that's the one I'll never forget from an unforgettable campaign year. It's true. Nico, I came here uh, for this, this, this short period that I'll be here with my other fellow uh, IOP fellows over here. And the whole question on my mind is why is this happening? Why in the Republican ranks did all of the establishment figures falter uh, as, you know, Jeb Bush raised $130 million, and how many delegates did he get? Three. Not a great shoot-to-use ratio in, in television. When, uh, when you look at the Democratic side, I covered Hillary Clinton in 2008 in the primaries, where she was the nominee until she wasn't. And then I covered Barack Obama, and now this year, um, he, she was the nominee until almost she wasn't. Why did the insurgencies of Bernie Sanders and why did the, um, the outlier campaign for Donald Trump make the pundits wrong at every turn and make the, uh, the, the political establishment, the elected officials, tone deaf for the last two years? Why? And I think a tremendous amount of it has to do with the fact that the, the traditional media that Bob and I worked in for, for those many decades the digital world has so overtaken that. And the way we communicate, the way candidates now have the tools to communicate directly with, with, uh, with the voters. And something that, Nico, you talk about in your book and in, the, in your writings on this, that the digital age is so transforming our relationships with the media that I think we're at a moment when we can't possibly 
fully explain where we are. We have no idea where we're going, and we have no idea what that will mean to the next election cycle, which of course starts on November 9th. 2016, the 2020 campaign begins that moment. Can I add just a little something to that? I, I think, and I think all of that is a part of it, and I, we, can, we can talk about that some more. But I think what has happened here is that our political infrastructure has basically collapsed. I think it has been overwhelmed by money. And I think that's why you see the Democratic Party, the oldest party, uh, in the United States, uh, the third oldest political party in the world, I think, uh, comes up with one legitimate Democratic candidate. Now, this is nothing for or against her, but I mean, when you stop and think about it, how is it this system that we have managed to really come up with only one Democrat who had a national following, and she was uh, mightily challenged by someone who was not even a member of the party. So you have that on one side, and on the other side, you have a reality TV star who winds up uh, with the nomination. How could that happen? I think what happened is because this system has been so overwhelmed by money, we're seeing more and more that serious people just don't want to fool with it anymore, and they're doing other things. When you see somebody like uh, Olympia Snow, who could have been reelected had she chosen to run again, just walk away and say, my time is better spent doing something else. When you see people coming into the Congress and say, you know, I don't want to spend 30 hours a week, which I'm expected to do, making cold calls to beg people for money. It's just not the way I want to spend, I want to spend my life. And so the result is we have a totally different talent pool now from which our candidates are drawn. And basically, I'm not saying they're bad people, but it's a different group of people that used to seek office in this country. And so when serious people are turning away and don't want to fool with it, the talent pool is made up of people who are willing to fool with it. And I think that is why we are where we are right now. And uh, you can talk about it in many different ways, but to me, that is the core reason these chickens have been coming home to roost for a long time, and now they've roosted, and we're going to have to deal with it. And we do have, you know, on the Democratic side, we had Bernie Sanders, not a good fundraiser in terms of the 30, phone, 30 hours a week of phone calls, cold calls, but built a really compelling online fundraising operation that fueled his rise. Mm -hmm. And then we have Donald Trump, who, at least in the primary, significantly self-financed. Mm -hmm. So let's just talk about each side for a minute. On the Democratic side, uh, it, it strikes me that the Republican primary was uh, one of the deepest benches, one of the fullest slate of primary candidates we've seen in decades, with many governors and senators and party leaders running for president. Um, and that kind of contrasts pretty starkly with the Democratic side, where we really just had Bernie and Hillary, two very well-established, long candidates, but it was a relatively weak bench in the scheme of things. Do you have any sense of why that might be? I think there was an air of almost dynasty that one more, that this Clinton, who had been in the White House as First Lady, who had uh, been elected to the Senate, 
who had gone off to be Secretary of State, that she was kind of owed the chance, and she came so close in 2008, that she was kind of owed the chance that this is, she had a big structure there, a big, big uh, ranks of, of followers, and but she's got the highest negative ratings, maybe because she's got that very, very long uh, public. So, uh, so I think there was a. Uh, I think m many voters felt they Democrats felt they owed it to her. And, and you know, uh, another part, Nico, is I think Joe Biden would have run yeah. had his son not died. And and I take him at his word uh, that by the time the family kind of got through that, and I I know the Bidens and I know how close they all are. Uh, I, I think he would have run uh, had, had that had that not happened. Um, on the Republican side, you talk about a deep bench. I, I would just say it was a crowded bench. Mm -hmm. Is kind of the way. <laughs> is kind of the way I would put it. But you know, I came up here last year. I've, I've been doing this fellowship spread out over over three semesters, and I, I've got a lot of eyebrows uh, raised and eyes rolling when I said I thought that Donald Trump had a really good chance to get the uh, Republican nomination, and. Uh, I say that because, I mean, I, I just sense the frustration out there. People are, are frustrated, they're upset, uh, they send one group of people to Washington and nothing happens, then they send another group and nothing happens, and I mean, look where we are right now. The president in February asked for funds to develop a, a virus uh, to prevent uh, the Zika uh, disease. That was in February. It is now September and the Congress still has not acted on that. The Republicans blame the Democrats, the Democrats blame the Republicans. I blame everybody. Uh, this is an outrage. This is one of the worst uh, uh, stains on, on, on our government that, that I can recall. And yet, they're getting ready to go on vacation again, and, and nothing again will, will get done. No wonder people are frustrated. No wonder they're upset. And, and I, I had the sense that we were going to see that. And what Donald Trump did, uh, I don't think he's a remarkably good politician. I'm not sure he is a good politician, but he knows how to get on television. And while Jeb Bush was out there trying to raise $115 million and wouldn't declare for president because he knew if he did, uh, he could no longer raise money for his super PAC, Trump did something that is very obvious in retrospect. Uh, he just realized that if you called a certain number of television programs and, and agreed to be on them, that two or three would invite you to be on. And so while they were all going through all this kind of old-fashioned kind of politics, he was just getting out there and getting on television. And, and uh, did he get a free ride? Not always. Uh, he, he was challenged along the way. I remember once Joe Scarborough Morning Joe just cut him off and hung up on him, uh, you know, because he wouldn't. But the fact he was just getting out there and, and, and people reacted to that, and, and he pretty much got the nomination before the others realized what hit but, him. But he did that too, Bob, by getting so much coverage from the mainstream media that was very often scathing, condescending, uh, pointing out where he was calling John McCain, it wasn't a, not a war hero. The, every time uh, Mr. Trump went and said one more thing, people said, well, that, that's going to take care of his campaign. He, his popularity surged, and that's the disconnect that makes the Republican side so very different this year. But it, it, it was a campaign on the Republican side. Uh, my uh, 
uh, associate, uh, Lucy Boyd, who's working for me and, and uh, working with me, I should say, who just graduated from, uh, from the Kennedy School, uh, we went to the South Carolina primary, and I've been covering Donald Trump since he fixed that ice skating rink in, uh, in New York. You know, and it was a great story. I mean, you know, the city had spent $11 million. They couldn't get the ice to freeze. He said, let me do it. And in three months, he, he got people skating out there in, in Central Park. So I, you know, interviewed him, and, but I'd never actually seen him on the stump till South Carolina. And I, I said to Lucy, I said, you take that side of the room. I'll take this side of the room and just go out there and ask those people what they like about Donald Trump. And, and, and she probably interviewed 15 people and I interviewed 15 people and she came back and we put our stuff together and if we interviewed 30 people, 28 of them said, I just like it that he speaks his mind. And I got the sense that they, they were not so interested in the specifics of what he said, but that he was just speaking out and, and it reflected the frustration uh, that they had, and, and I think that was uh, that was and remains the core of his success, and that's why this is not a campaign so much about issues as it is, I think, about attitude. But when we think about a campaign about attitude, uh, it seems like there—I mean, there is there is a civil war inside the Republican yes. Party, and you had you had George Bush Senior today say, or Politico reporting, he's going to vote for Hillary Clinton. He confided that in a candidate. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what do you, how do you see what's going to happen in the Republican Party, and what, what's a, what's a long-term Republican voter to, going to do who, who doesn't like the kind of the post-truth politics of Donald Trump? And uh, there are those who say that this is the year they just cannot. Uh, participate. Jeff Flake, the senator from Arizona, uh, Rob Portman, who I think is doing pretty well in Ohio, had a, was challenged for for uh, re-election and and maybe pulling out okay, but stayed away. When we when we went to the conventions this summer, the Republican convention, there were a lot of leading Republicans who didn't even come near near the place. Uh, I believe it was uh, uh, David Brooks who wrote in the New York Times at this times that this is a year when you will be marked, either you were for Trump, or you climbed on board that, or you were against it. And it's a little too early to be able to sell, whether there's gonna be a long-term penalty for those who stayed away, or whether maybe a long-term reward. I think the Republican Party may come apart. Uh, I, I'm not sure there's a, there's a tent large enough uh, to contain the two separate parts of the Republican Party that, that we're seeing now. I mean, if Trump, is elected, this will not be a victory for the Republican Party. It'll be a victory for the Trump Party because it's going to be something totally different than what certainly people my age have become accustomed to as, as identifying as the Republican Party. I mean, this has been a party traditionally of free trade. Uh, this, is, this has been a party traditionally of a strong uh, national defense. Uh, and that we would not be afraid to use that defense. He, he seems to be bringing things back home and, and, and talks about building walls. That's, that's not the Republican Party that I've been accustomed to covering over, over these many years. And uh, sometimes I wonder what will have the, the greater effect on the Republican Party. Uh, will it be better or worse if he's elected, or will it be better or worse if he's if he's defeated, and I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but I know one thing: the Republican Party, as we have known it, 
I think uh, maybe no more. It's almost like Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump are almost three different parties. In yes. A sense. And can you, in either of you, in your experience covering, uh, you know, American politics over the last 40 years, can you... Can you remember a time when a party was so fractured, when when you had le Senate leaders refusing to endorse or engage with the with the presidential nominee? Yes, I can. 1968, when the Democratic Party came came apart uh, in in uh, Chicago, I happened to be at that convention, and you know they not only the Democrats not only lost in 1968, but they came together in 1972 and tried to institute all these reforms, threw out all the party leaders, the Dick Daly's in Chicago, the big city mayors and all of that, and nominated George McGovern, who was a really fine man and someone that I kept up with over the years, and I have the greatest respect for him. But he was totally out of the mainstream of his own party. And, and uh, then he goes down in a, in, in a landslide defeat. And then you come to 1976, and where the Democrats elected somebody that nobody had ever heard of, uh, Jimmy Who, as he was until he won the until uh, he won the Iowa caucuses. So we not, we may not be seeing the end of the impact on the Republican Party with this election. I, I think it's going to have an impact uh, in years to come. So let's, uh, I have a few more questions then we'll open up to the audience. But uh, Bob, you moderated three presidential debates, 2004, 2008, 2012. I'm, I wanna know, how do you prepare for a presidential debate? And we're less than a week away. Next Monday night is the first one. The stakes seem very high, maybe even higher than normal. And we have in Donald Trump, a candidate who uh, seems to really deflect and dismiss any kind of follow-ups or rebuttals. What is, as, a, as, a, as arguably the most practiced presidential debate moderator in the country, what is your advice? Do your homework. I mean, uh, and, and be prepared to challenge. And, and let me make clear, because there's a big uh, thing going on this year about what is the role of the moderator? Should they be the fact checkers? Should they fact check? And, and the answer is yes, absolutely. But I say it in this way. The chief fact checkers, in my opinion, should be the candidates themselves. And if candidate A says something that's absolutely dead wrong, I think the first person who should be given the opportunity to call that candidate on his mistake or his error is the other candidate. And I think people want to see that. Now, if the other candidate doesn't pick up on it immediately, then I think the moderator steps in and, and reminds people that, you know, for the record, uh, this, this is what the true facts are. And, and, you know, you should be able to, to say that by, by citing specifics, but it's the, it's the candidates. This is about the candidates I, and not about the moderator. I wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post and, and, and I told them, I said, memo to moderators, it's not about you. And I think if you, you know, you kind of keep that in mind going into it, I think, but it's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, I, I just think uh, these two candidates for very opposite reasons are two of the hardest people in American politics to, to interview. And, uh, but I, I'm not sure 
that either one of them is going to be reticent about correcting the other one. <laughs> and uh, so I think it'll be very interesting and it will give us a, a much better picture, uh, a more complete picture of who these candidates are. And, and that's what you're doing, trying to do in these debates. Give people, tell them, help them to understand more about these candidates that maybe they knew going in. The dinosaur format for debates was in place when I did two debates in 1988 and 1992. Panel of three serious journalists and a moderator. Moderator asked the first two questions and then uh, kept a stopwatch. And the, the rules were very tight. You had to like, have a minute and a half to answer. You had 30 seconds to respond from that. And the clock controlled, if not choked, the debate. Uh, but that was easy for those of us on the panel to come up with a broad range of issues. I remember working hard, we made sure somebody asked about Supreme Court, somebody asked about the nuclear triad. Somebody, I, I asked both candidates, who are your heroes at a time when a lot of sports figures were, uh, were being called out on, on drug charges and, and, and failings? So uh, the debate where the moderator controls everything, calls the shots in terms of the, of the issues. It's much, much harder what Bob did and what is in front of these uh, five moderators coming up because your job is, it's easier to be drawn in and be part of the story. It is also uh, harder, I think, to, the, the point of the debate is so that we can peel back the layers and see an illumination of the candidate, understand more than we understood rather than just getting talking points spit back. And that's a very difficult thing for one moderator. You know, and, and the way the format is now, it's divided into 15-minute segments. Okay. And, uh, you know, for the moderators, they have to remember, people go to a baseball game to see the baseball players. They don't go to see the umpire. And you are the umpire. And I, I think if you kind of keep that in mind, it, it will help you to, to kind of steer the But you're also the pitcher. The right. yeah. yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, the umpire, yeah, that's right. In baseball, the umpire doesn't throw that. So let me ask one, one last question, and we'll open it up. Yeah. But here we have two, of our, two people who have been in public life a very long time. And you talk about peeling back the layers, but Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump are in some ways very well known to the American public. And they're also two of the most unpopular presidential candidates in history. And yet the Presidential Debates Commission has set a pretty high threshold at the 15% to keep Gary Johnson or Jill Stein out of the presidential debates. And I just kind of wondered if you had any thoughts about that. I, I covered the John Anderson campaign in 1980, a year when Republicans were looking at Ronald Reagan. Do we really want a, a really conservative former B-grade actor from Hollywood? Uh, Democrats are looking at their incumbent Democrat, Jimmy Carter. Nobody was happy. So John Anderson came along as the liberal uh, Republican congressman who got 6% of the vote, responsible. But, but he still didn't throw the election one way or the other. And I did one debate where it was George Herbert Walker Bush, Bill Clinton, and Ross Perot. And I still think we live in a country where that third party effort, we don't live in a parliamentary 
democracy where a third party or a coalition can make a difference. So it doesn't bother me that there's no third party uh, in on the debate. You have to draw the line somewhere. As a matter of fact, there are about 2,000 people running for president this year. <laughs> and that's, that's about what it usually is. So you can't have 2,000 people. And you have to find some way to I'm have a, a cutoff. Bench. Uh, yeah, a crowded bench. But, you know, uh, the the criteria now is you have to be on the ballot in enough states that theoretically you could win, and you have to score at least 15 points in in an average of five, five debates. And I know very well, because I was on the debate commission uh, for a little while last year before CBS asked me to come back to work this year, and uh, we wrestle with that. I mean, whether 15%, should it be higher? Should it be a little bit lower? And they settled, a, they decided in the end, after I left, to go ahead and go with 15%. And, and you know, it's not perfect, but I mean, you have to, you have to set some kind of uh, uh, rule there. And I, I think that's pretty good. All right, I'll open it up now to questions. We have some microphones on either side and uh, uh, three rules about the questions, speaking of moderating. Um, one, <laughs> please keep it short. A lot of people want to ask questions of our two distinguished guests here. Uh, so keep it short. No speeches. Okay. I will, I will cut you off. Uh, uh, and make sure it's a question. End it with a question. End, end it with a question mark. All right. Do we have any questions from the audience? And uh, introduce yourself, too. Please, go ahead. Oh. Hi. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hi, I'm Casey. I'm a senior at the college. I'm one of Anne's students this semester in her uh, fellow group. Um, and my question is kind of asking about the future uh, candidates we might see in both the Democratic and Republican Party, that we have Hillary Clinton, the first female like major party candidate, and then Donald Trump, who is a candidate who has been able to say things that previously would have derailed a candidacy, but he just keeps getting more popular. Um, so there's kind of a question of now does he bring, does he open the doors to potentially more blusterous candidates, candidates who might no longer need to be um, super like engaged in, or like have elected office experience or whatever. Um, so do you think that in future elections, especially in 2020, that the historic candidacies of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump will now open the doors to previous candidates who, um, in previous cycles, would never have a shot of the presidency. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, Casey and others have asked me, where do you think that these are going to be two, either one of them is going to be a one-term president? And we really can't tell at this point. And um, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to another factor that we haven't mentioned here. Every president I've covered out of the seven Every one of them's presidency has been defined not by that laundry list of, of campaign promises they bring in, but by what unbidden crises roll into their head, into their path. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the 9-11, the economy falling off a cliff. And I think that between now and election day, there could be some October surprise from outside that makes an impact. But I also think judging both of these, both of these candidates, they are going to try to, they are going to have to face things they never saw coming. And that's also one of the things it's impossible to ask about in a, in a debate, but as a fascinating test of character, what kind of character do they bring 
to that Oval Office, Bob? I think it's a very good question. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure it's going to encourage uh, a different group of people to run. I mean, it, the thing is now so much money and, and the odious process that we have to go through. I hope, I hope people, uh, I hope there's a way that serious people can turn back to politics and see it as a, as a worthwhile uh, pursuit and a worthwhile use of their time. But I, I really don't see that right now. But I do think one of the things that has changed this campaign so much is social media. Because what we're seeing, our campaign dialogue this year is more like the thread on a blog post. Uh, we, you know, it's someone posts a blog and somebody says, well, you're a complete idiot. And then the next person said, no, you're a blank, blank idiot. And then the next person says, no, you're a blank, blank, blank idiot. And, and on and, and on it goes. We, we, and it's, you know, we go from kind of the inane to the profane. And and I think uh, I think social media has had has well, had an do, impact do, that way. Do you way. think the country has just gotten less serious as a culture? No, I don't think they've gotten less serious. I think people are still worried. They're worried about their safety. They're worried about paying taxes. Uh, they're worried about making it a, a a better world for their for their children. And they're not sure if, for the first time that it's going to be. Uh, but I think our it's so hard now to develop a consensus. Let me just digress here just a little bit. You know, when I came to work at CBS back in the days when you had three television stations in every town, probably four, every town had a, had a newspaper that was fairly good, uh, and people formed their opinions on the basis of, of what they were getting from, from those television stations and from their local newspaper. And, and didn't you tell me that people didn't believe what they saw on TV, really, till they read it in the paper? Uh, people did not, television did not become the place where most people got their news until the Kennedy assassination. From that weekend on, television became where most people got their information. But what happened is we were all getting our information kind of from the same sources and from the same data. We might not agree with the editorial policy of the newspaper in our hometown, but we assumed that what was on the front page was true and, and, it, and it had been checked out. What has happened now with the fractionalizing of, of, you know, there are now 700 choices on the dial instead of four choices. You have what I call these validation channels where the people who listen to the, the right leaning ones, they get one, not only one set of opinions, they get one set of facts. And the people who listen to the, the left-leaning ones, they get another set of facts. So what's happened here is we're basing our opinions on separate data. We're not using the same data to come to these conclusions. And I think that's one of the reasons we're having such a difficult time reaching a consensus on anything, plus the fact that the Congress is just in gridlock most of the time. Our, our, our government has ceased to function. You know, uh, the purpose of government is to improve the, right, uh, the lives of citizens. If it doesn't, there's no reason to have it. And, and right now, they're just stuck because the, the, the divide is so deep. And so I think that's, so I don't know, you know, what impact this. Maybe it'll give people a lesson when they see this election. Maybe they're not satisfied and they'll realize 
you know, we can do a lot better than this. I hope that's a conclusion they come to, but I really don't know the answer to that. We also have put the tools of journalism in the hands of the candidates themselves, and they can tweet, and they can put YouTube videos up, and, and a lot of voters can go directly to the candidate rather than any filter. Not just the candidates, whitehouse.gov. Yeah. Thank you. Introduce Thank yourself you. and ask us a question. Hi, my name is Maria Anala. I'm a news journalist from Finland. I'm writing about these elections for the Finnish audience. And I'd like to hear your tips and hints on what to watch for in the upcoming debates. What are the most interesting things? What might Trump and Clinton do to either really succeed or to really fail to really influence the outcome of the elections? Watch to see whether the candidate sticks to the talking points that he or she had been using for months, whether they glance off of and don't answer the hard questions, and whether they're nasty to each other. Americans like it when, don't, don't like it when there's a nastiness to it. What I want to see is I want to listen to them explain to me how they propose to do these things. I mean, we, we have heard them say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But my question is, and how are you going to do that? Uh, uh, Trump, for example, I'm going to uh, send 11 million people back to Mexico. Uh, how are you going to get them there? I mean, we didn't have enough buses to get the people out of New Orleans before Katrina hit. How are you going to get 11 million people? And how are you going to get them on the buses? You're going to say, hey, everybody, 8.30 Saturday morning, come on down to the bus station. I want to hear some details. Uh, I, I, I would have similar questions for some of the things that uh, that uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton is proposing. She's she's proposing, uh, you know, that uh, we make it easier to, for people to go to college and and you know eliminate debt, almost uh, free college for everybody. And I think that's great. But how are you going to how are you going to get the people uh, the students ready to go to college? What are you going to do for K, K uh, through 12 students uh, to prepare them to be able to take advantage of, of going to college? We've heard, you know, we've heard almost nothing from either candidate on education beyond, you know, free college for everybody. And, and once you start talking about free college for everybody, again, I go back to the old backup question, and how do you propose to pay for that? Uh, let, me, let me ask each of you, in the yeah. debates you worked on, good was, was there a seminal moment in your experience of the debate that when you heard it, you thought this is, this is going to be a meaningful moment for the campaign? You know, the, the, the surprising thing to me uh, in the debate between Romney and uh, President Obama was um, Benghazi. It's still around. It's still big news. And it was big news before going into that because at that point the White House was saying Osama bin Laden is dead and General Motors is alive. And they didn't say the war on terrorism was over, but they sort of, sort of, we're trying to suggest that. So I thought I have to start with Benghazi. And I mean, I didn't throw a trick question. I just threw a big, you know, fastball right down the middle of the plate and they'd flipped a coin to see who goes first. And, and, and so it was Governor Romney and he sort of deflected the question and sort of moved off and started talking about other things. And then Obama came back and just blistered him, you know, 
And, and I couldn't understand, well, wait a minute, this, this, this is a question, and especially Republicans were, were all concerned about, why didn't you answer the question? I later found out uh, from his own people, they thought that he was ahead at that point. And they went into that debate with a strategy of basically what a football team would call a prevent defense. Uh, they thought if he just didn't make any mistakes that he, that, that he was going to win. Well, in fact, he wasn't ahead at that point. He had been after, after the first debate, uh, perhaps, but he wasn't ahead at that point, and uh, he just went at it with the, with the wrong strategy. And, I mean, in a negative kind of way, to me, that was, that was I, I'm not sure it was a turning point in the campaign, but I think he made a, a mistake uh, there. Turning point was the first question of the first debate I ever participated in when the moderator, who only got one question, asked the governor of Massachusetts, whose, whose record on opposition to capital punishment was well known and wasn't going to change. And the moderator said, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you? And the reaction was just what you just did. There was a gasp from the darkened audience behind us. And other pundits said afterward, the very kind of bloodless, technocratic answer that Governor Dukakis is saying, said, well, he still uh, opposes capital punishment, was the end of his campaign. And you know, Anne, that is the perfect example of what I was talking about and what we've been talking about. These debates are about more than just the candidate defining his position on a certain issue. People saw that and, and they were shocked to see it. Uh, and I think uh, Governor Dukakis was a good man, but you know, I think in that case, they wanted to see a little bit of emotion about that. I mean, you know, I mean, I think if he'd have said no, I would have hit him with a shovel or something yeah. if I caught him, you know. And, and the next question was Which is George why we're a government of laws, was quite to frankly. Vice President George Bush saying, if you die between the election and the inauguration, is Dan Quayle really ready to be President of the United States? And that got a reaction as well. So those first moments can be killers. You know, I, I mean, one of the all-time great moments in these debates was when Lloyd Benson turned to Dan Quayle and said, Senator, I know Jack Kennedy. He was a friend of mine. You are no Jack Kennedy. And I mean, it, it, I've never seen anything uh, that had that kind of an impact. And it really kind of set, set the tone for the rest of the debate. You know, I mean, one example like that, it, 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 people remember that. And, and I think they probably might have had a different view of uh, uh, Senator Quayle after that, but it was a, it was a moment. Introduce yourself and ask. Well, uh, I'm a student here at the college. Um, so there's been a lot of talk of major change within the Republican Party um, in the next few years. Looking at recent events within the Democratic Party, such as the Bernie or Bust movement and the DNC email leak scandal, do you believe that there will be similarly significant change within the Democratic Party or even to America's two-party system? I'm sorry. Uh, can, can you just repeat the question and slow it down a little bit? And get a little closer to the it's mic. It's very echoey. Sorry. It's not you, it's the, it's the echo. So there's been a lot of talk of major change within the Republican Party in the next few years. Um, looking at recent events within the Democratic Party, such as the Bernie or Bust movement or the DNC email leak scandal, do you believe that there will be a similarly significant change within the Democratic Party or even to America's two-party system? Go ahead. I, I 
So he, he said, uh, we've talked tonight about the Republican Party uh, undergoing kind of a civil war and trying to figure out what will be next for it. But the Democratic Party hit a pretty tumultuous, divisive primary with even at the convention, Bernie or Bust and Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And do you, what do you see for the future of the Democratic Party? Um, and what does this tell us about the two-party system, the health of the two parties as a whole? I still think the two-party system is what works for American democracy. And a lot of the democratic schism was a generational thing, where Bernie Sanders, uh, who had never really been a Democrat, he was an independent a socialist in the, uh, in the Congress, um, tapped into a feeling of, by a lot of young people that, that that was a new path that they wanted to go. So uh, I, I think that there's, there's damage done, but I look at it as uh, layered as opposed to the party coming apart. I think that both parties are the weakest that they have ever been. And, and most surveys would, would pretty much back that up. I mean, for example, both parties, Republicans and Democrats, fewer people in America now call themselves a Republican or a Democrat at, at any time in, in the history of both parties. You know, the parties used to be very powerful when they were the main fundraising device for the candidates, but now the candidates raise their own money and they can go about it in different ways and they can almost ignore the parties. So, uh, yes, I think, I think you may, may well see a, a reorganization of the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party. There's no guarantee that any party is going to last forever. And uh, we may see a, a reorganization of the Democratic Party as we've seen uh, with the Republican Party. But I think this election will tell, will tell a lot. Uh, and I think both parties maybe will come to their senses about we've got to get serious about this and we've got to find a new way to appeal to people. And it can't be just begging them for money over and over again. Because I think a lot of people, and what's wrong, they think they're not getting their money's worth. Uh, and they're not, because the government's not doing anything. It's come to a complete and total stop. I also think that after Howard Dean won, uh, won, ha, I wish, after Howard <laughs> Dean lost the primary in 03, the Democratic Party had a pretty intense internal uh, uh, conflict. Howard Dean ended up the DNC chair in one of the most competitive fights for that position in, in a long time. And that, um, that really opened the way for Obama, in some sense, to defeat Hillary in the primary in 08. So the Democratic Party is just in a different position institutionally than the Republican Party. Okay, introduce yourself and ask us a question. Hi, I'm Cornelia. I'm a second year MPP student here at the Kennedy School. Um, thanks so much for your comments. Stand a little closer to the mic for us. I just had a question about the media coverage of the Trump campaign. Um, we've seen that he, you know, is as much an entertainer as he is a candidate and has made a lot of really inflammatory comments. And I was wondering, um, you mentioned, you know, he was criticized for his comments about John McCain, but do you think on the whole the mainstream media has been tough enough on Trump and, you know, how much do you think they, uh, the media contributed to his momentum, particularly in the primaries? Let me, let me ask you this question. Do you think you know enough about Donald Trump to decide whether you want to vote for him or not? At this stage, yes. Yes? Well, then I think we've probably done our job. I don't know if all voters and I think the same way, though. But 
but I mean, but I'm, I'm serious about that. And, you know, no campaign is perfect. Uh, we can always do a better job. Uh, but I think by and large, I, I think the press has done a pretty good job in covering this campaign. And, and yes, we have put him on. But putting him on does not necessarily mean that's always positive for him. Maybe, maybe it brought him to people's attention in the beginning, but maybe now uh, the constant scrutiny uh, is causing people to have second thoughts about it. Certainly, certainly the people that are, are now trying to run his campaign are doing everything they can, everything they can to, to tone him down, you know, and, and uh, chain him to a teleprompter, as it were. Uh, so I think, and when you look at the, the job, I mean, I think the Washington Post has done an excellent job uh, in, in uh, discussing and bringing to light some of his business practices, uh, uh, his charities. I think the New York Times, uh, the two interviews that uh, David, uh, David uh, Sanger and Maggie Haberman did with him on foreign policy, uh, I think they gave us a very, uh, a really good information about who he is and what he knows and what he doesn't know. I mean, what, what I was so proud of the Times, this was, this was not investigative journalism. They've, they've done some on, on his, the tax breaks he has claimed and so forth and so on. But the interviews that uh, Sanger and Haberman did on him were just two very well-informed reporters asking him questions about and we found out that, uh, you know, he thought maybe it would be good uh, for the Japanese to develop their own nuclear weapons in South Korea. We found out that he was not quite sure NATO was working. And, you, you know, you'd call a country up and make sure they'd paid their bills before you uh, carried out the treaty obligations that we had to them. Uh, I think by and large, uh, I think I, I have to say, and, you know, I'm, I'm biased, I'm, I'm part of the press, but I think we've done a pretty good job. I know we'll get a follow-up question to that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I will take that opportunity, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that uh, at the Shorenstein Center, Professor Tom Patterson has uh, released two of five studies. The third one actually comes out tomorrow morning, uh, which looks at eight major media outlets and uh, the way they've covered this campaign all of 2015. The first study covers all of 2015. The second study, the first six months of 2016, in the third study, the convention period. And uh, I think that uh, the, the story the study tells is uh, definitely a significant, you could say, learning opportunity for the media, in part because the coverage is overwhelmingly focused on polls. What do the polls say? And if you write stories about what the polls say, then you write stories about how Donald Trump is rising and winning in the polls. And he writes stories about how Hillary Clinton is dropping and Bernie is challenging her. And the media, the media narrative, the story that emerges from that, I think can be unintentionally positive for Donald, for a candidate like Donald Trump. And, you know, issue coverage is a remarkably small part of the media coverage, but that's in part because the candidates' positions don't change all that much. And it's not newsworthy to keep writing the same story about Hillary Clinton's child care policy. And the, in many ways, the, the challenge here is less about the media and more about the way the political process is set up for these really long campaigns where journalists are looking for things to write about 
in an environment that in many ways incentivizes a candidate like Donald Trump? Well, I, I would just take slight issue with that in that when Trump started going down after the Republican convention and Hillary Clinton started going up, we, we certainly reported that. Sure. It just as we're reporting now that it's, it's getting back to close to where it was. Uh, it's always good if we could have more attention on the issues. But again, this seems to be a campaign where people are not so worried about the issues so much as they're worried about presidential temperament and, and presidential and the attitude. Uh, Bob, do you think that's a trend? Has has the, has the electorate gotten over time more interested in temperament in the candidates, or does it bounce around? Or uh, I think it it comes about because of these two candidates, uh, and and I think uh, it's raised questions in in many people's in many people's minds, uh, and I think that has that has something to do with. The fact that, that people still, the majority of people still get their, most of their information off television, uh, even though we have uh, digital is playing a big role in all that, but the majority of people still get their, 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 their news off television. And how you come off on television still makes a tremendous uh, difference. You know, I, I have this theory that I'll try not to run on too long here and I already am, but I, I have this theory that the most successful politicians are the ones that master the main communications medium of their time. Our founders were great writers, and that's when most people got their, their, their news from print. And then along came radio, and Franklin Roosevelt was the first politician to understand how to use radio. Uh, with his fireside chats. Jack Kennedy became the master of television, and nobody uh, has been able to handle live television the way he did. You know, up until Kennedy, uh, when Eisenhower was president, they wouldn't let them broadcast his news conferences live. They could not be brought, they could tape them, film them, but they couldn't broadcast it until it had been, the transcript had been reviewed by the by the White House press secretary. Hmm. Kennedy said, that's ridiculous. And, and he started having these things, and suddenly we, we came to understand that salesmanship, charm, wit, uh, that had a big impact on people as much as a position on the, on the, on the issues. And you know, Ronald Reagan comes along, uh, an old actor, but he wasn't ashamed of being an actor. He said you know, what he had learned in the movies was the most important tool in his toolkit. And, and the result is, Ronald Reagan always looked like a president. He always looked like a president. And there was, there's never, ever been a bad photo of a president. But he understood that people don't just judge you by the close-up that everybody sees in the morning uh, when they get up and brush their teeth. They see you in a wide shot. They see you from behind. They see the way you walk. And, and all of this goes into their perception of, of who you are. So uh, it's, it's more than about just the issues. Maybe people are making their decisions for the wrong reasons, but I think all of that factors into their decision making. This year, the issue of trust. We have two major party nominees that a majority of, P of Americans do not hold in high esteem. And Americans do not have a high level of trust in candidate. That's different every election, but that, I think that's key this year. 
All right, our last question. Tell us who you are. Uh, so Aaron Bauman, I work in teaching innovation here at the Kennedy School. And I hope you won't see this as doubling down on the last question so much as kind of building on it. There's been a lot of criticism throughout this campaign leveled against the media. In recent weeks, for example, you can just look at questions that have arisen over the role of journalists, not just in covering a campaign or moderating debates, but actually how they interact with and how they present information to the public. So my question for both of you or for all of you is, does the media have a role not just in informing the public, but in educating the public? Well put. Uh, both. Both, I would think, in terms of uh, educating, uh, meaning getting the candidates to go beyond their written talking points, and to educate the American people to put some of these things in context. Just as Bob pointed out, you can say, I'm going to build a wall, I'm going to deport people, I am going to make uh, public college free for everyone. But uh, to be able to educate Americans on just where reality stops on some of those things, uh, I think is very much a part of a mainstream journalist's job. I, I do. I, I, I think it's a wonderful question. And I do think part of our role is, is to educate. Uh, I would also add, though, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't always make him drink. And I mean, uh, education is a two-way thing, and, and our, our challenge is to present news in a way that people understand that it's relevant to their life. I mean, I, I, I just go on and on and on about campaign finance reform. I mean, and I've been talking about it for 20 years, and, and I always think back to James Reston, who was the great columnist for the New York Times, and, and Reston said one time, he said, you know, people will do anything about South America but, re but read about it. And <laughs> I think campaign finance is the South America of today's, of today's uh, politics. You can talk about it, but you can't get people to read about it. They think it has to do with politics. They think it has to do with politicians. They think it has nothing to do with their lives. And the fact is, it has everything to do with their lives. And until we can kind of correct this and, and get this system back where it's not just about, you know, uh, people having to call people up and beg them for money. Uh, and in fact, as we're seeing now, it, it, sometimes it doesn't make all that much difference. But the politicians, serious people don't want to have to go through this kind of thing. And, and I think until we can kind of turn that around, uh, I think we're going to continue to have problems. We'll squeeze in one more question. Thank you. My name is Madi Sol Thomer. I'm a mid-career uh, master in public administration student here at the Kennedy School. Um, you've talked a bit about uh, the unpopularity of the two major candidates, the frustrations, um, but certainly we're seeing very different frustrations in the American public particularly by race, by geography, um, perhaps even by class, and by age, as you mentioned with uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Regardless of who wins come November, what do you think this means for uh, not just American politics, but what we're going to be able to accomplish moving forward as a country? It's a terrific question, and I think that's in large part why um, dissatisfaction uh, with government and the, the lack of satisfaction with our system right now helped to fuel those insurgent candidacies. And how much 
of that political dialogue came not from the mainstream press, but came from voters who turned out in primaries and said, we're going our own way. You know, I wish I could say otherwise, but I, I you know, I think probably more gridlock. Uh, that's what I think. But I don't see any consensus building one way or another, and I, I hope that's not true. I mean, I hope we do find a way out of that. But the other part is, you know, we don't know what, we're living in a very dangerous world right now. And, and events will probably dictate what happens here. And let's just hope that, that smart people and the right people are there to deal with them. And maybe in that way, it, it could bring the country together. You know, one of the things that I remember on 9-11, the morning after 9-11, it changed. America was a different place. You know, and there was no road rage. I remember going to work that morning. Uh, people had flags on their radio antennas. People were waving at one another. And this awful thing had happened. But we all realized we had, we had been through it together. And, and somehow or another, uh, we had survived. And people said they'd never seen it like that. Well, I'm old enough to remember World War II. And I remember... Uh, you know, when people all work together, and we did so because we had to. I mean, I was just a little boy. Uh, but we saw that for a while. And uh, let's just hope we don't have to have some kind of cataclysmic event that will bring us together again. But it is possible, and it's, you know, we have a very strong country, we have a very strong constitution, and we've been through some very difficult times before, especially in the very beginning. And let's just hope that that uh, it holds for a while longer. I, I think it will, but I think it's going to be, we're in for some difficult days, I think. So I wanted to just make a final request. Both of you have many years of covering uh, uh, Washington, D.C. and America's presidents, and I'm sure you must have some great stories. And so I wondered if either of you wanted to share, both of you would like to share a favorite story. Can Go I ahead, start? Anne. Yes. Saddam Hussein rolled his tanks into neighboring Kuwait, and President George Herbert Walker Bush goes up to Camp David with his war council, his generals, his, his top team. It, it, it was a time where clearly the United States was the only global power that could bring together something that would prevent complete collapse in the Middle East. And when he came back to the White House that day on the helicopter, you've seen the scene a million times. Marine One comes down and the press is all lined up on the driveway and we're being beaten by the, the downdraft. And usually the president gets off the helicopter and goes right inside. But that day, George Herbert Walker Bush, who had to be very careful about what he said publicly about what the United States would do, came right over in front of me, stopped with my camera, everybody else uh, crowded around. He said how rewarded he was that even the Arab world was united against Saddam Hussein. And I burst out, look at the front page of the Washington Post, your good friend King Hussein of Jordan flies to Baghdad, embraces Saddam. George Bush wheeled around and kind of barked at me and said, well, I can read. What's your question? It knocked the wind out of me. I'd never heard him bark at anybody. The next day, before he announced he's sending defense secretary and the promise of troops to the Saudi Arabian, I was handed uh, up outside of his office a little envelope addressed to me, handwritten, Ann Compton, it's personal, underlined twice. And in a handwritten note, the president said, um, you did an excellent job in our press to and fro yesterday. I wasn't pleased with my answers to you. I hope they were not offensive. 
and next to the initials GB was a little happy face, <laughs> wearing a frown. Now, if the President of the United States can say he's sorry, in a moment like that, I took it home and I woke up, Billy, Teddy, Annie, and Michael, I said, if the President of the United States can say he's sorry, so can you. <laughs> I think my my favorite story is is uh, people always ask what was your biggest scoop, and and the way mine happened uh, was in 1976. President Ford, uh, I was covering uh, President Ford. He was running for the White House. Uh, you know, he was our first unelected president against Jimmy Carter, and so uh, we went up to New York, and they made some excuse for going up there. But the real reason we went up there was he was going to be interviewed by Barbara Walters. And so he went and he was interviewed uh, by Barbara uh, during the uh, middle of the day, and he was going to play on the Today Show the next day. And Barbara put out the word that anybody who interviewed the president or allowed the president to be interviewed before her exclusive interview ran on the Today Show would be killed. <laughs> and Barbara, who's the greatest competitor I ever competed against, uh, had a way of making people believe that. I mean, <laughs> you know, and so all of us in the White House press corps, of course, being reporters, we set out trying to figure out how to bust Barbara's scoop. And, uh, you know, you go through it, you go through the usual thing. I went to the press secretary and I said, well, what do you think? Do you think I, and he said, absolutely not. We've given Barbara our, our word that we will not let anyone interview her. So I, I said, okay. So then I went to the uh, White House Chief of Staff. I called him Dick in those days. I would later call him Mr. Vice President, Dick Cheney. And uh, who I would also add was one of the best staff people I ever worked with, totally nonpartisan, straight shooter, didn't give you any dirty laundry. Uh, we wouldn't expect that. But when you called him and asked him something, and you could always get him on the phone. I talked to him more than I talked to the press secretary. If he told you it was something was right, you could go with it. And if he told you it wasn't, it wasn't. And, and you know, you can't ask for anything more than that. But anyway, so I go, to, I go to Dick and I say, listen, what do you think? You think? He said, no, Bob, absolutely not. We're not going to do it. Well, then the next thing that happens is Walter Cronkite, and he didn't know about Barbara's interview at this point. He calls me on the phone and he said, Bob, I understand. <laughs> They're President Ford is going up to Yonkers a little later today. Do you mind if I come out and just look around? I said, what was I going to say? No, Walter, you stay in your office there. I, I said, well, of course, Walter, we'd be, be delighted. Come on out. I just got, well, do you think you could get me an interview with the president? And I said, Walter, I, I, I don't know. That might be kind of tough. He's not doing anything. So anyway, I knew what I was supposed to do. I go back to Dick Cheney, and I said, listen, uh, Walter Cronkite's coming up here and he wants to interview the president. And he said, no, no, we're not, we're, we're not going to do that, Bob. We've given our word. And I said, well, let me ask you this. I said, do you think it would be possible that I could just get Walter in to shake hands with the president? And I said, you know, I know the president likes Walter and he, he likes the president. He said, yeah, yeah, we could do that. And I said, and would it be all right if I just brought a camera crew along just to record it so Walter could have a little souvenir. And he said, Bob, we're not going to do an interview. And I said, I know that. But I mean, he said, well, OK. He said, we'll do that. So anyway, we, uh, the appointed hour arrives. <laughs> I mean, this really happened. I mean, 
the appointed hour arrived, we go back to the back door of this place where uh, President Ford was going to make the speech. They opened the door, and, and, and the cameraman's standing here, and I'm behind the cameraman, and Walter takes the microphone from the sound man, and he's got his microphone in his left hand, and in his, in his right hand, they open the door. He walks in, shakes hands with the president, and said, Mr. President, are you going to take your flu shot? Well, uh, the press secretary, this was a big story. The flu shots, uh, this was the first year and people were getting sick and that was a big story of what, what he was going to do. Well, President Ford almost burst out laughing. He knew exactly what was going on, but he, gave, he had a smile on his face, but he answered and he said, yes, Walter, I've decide, decided this is so important and uh, I, I, I want people to know that this is important, so yes, I'm going to I'm going to take my flu shot. Well, I mean, literally, the press secretary got Walter around the waist, and I thought he was going to try to wrestle him to the ground, but, you know, and he didn't. So anyway, long story short, the CBS Evening News started that evening with this in, in exactly these words. Good evening. President Ford told me in an exclusive interview on the campaign trail tonight that he was going to play, take his flu shot. And then we proceeded to play the entire interview it was some nine seconds long. Well, only one person knew how that came about. Only one person, but that person was Walter Cronkite. And from that moment on, Walter was my biggest fan. And when you, when you were a correspondent at CBS News and Walter Cronkite was on your side, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> so that's my favorite story. Uh, I want to thank everyone in the audience for coming. Your questions were excellent. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them. And I especially want to thank Anne and Bob, you are so generous with your time here on the campus, and we're very grateful for that. Thank you very much. All right, thank you, folks. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com. Thank you.